Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new, on this podcast, we explore the hard parts of being human and the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the major themes of this podcast is learning. How can we get good at getting good at things? Most of the time, we've applied this to internal skills, like becoming more interpersonally skillful or more patient, or hey, how about happier altogether, whatever that means. You could argue that learning is the single most important skill that anyone ever develops, because if we're good at that, we can get good at most anything else. That's why I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with an expert on business, productivity, creativity, and efficient learning, Josh Kaufman. Josh is the author of three best-selling books, The Personal MBA, The First 20 Hours, and How to Fight a Hydra. The Personal MBA is a number one international bestseller that might legitimately teach you more than most business schools. I think it's fair to say that it's been one of the most highly regarded books in the industry since it was published, and I've also found it really personally useful. His related website, personalmba.com, has been visited over 5 million times by readers all over the world, and he's also responsible for one of my favorite TED Talks, The First 20 Hours, How to Learn Anything. Before we get into today's conversation with Josh, just a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, and hopefully leave us a rating and a positive review. Also, you can find us all over social media. We're on Instagram at beingwellpodcast, and Rick and I both have our own personal social media profiles on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So, on to Josh. Josh, thanks so much for taking the time today. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. Thanks so much for inviting me. So happy to have you. Yeah, I mean, I was really looking forward to this for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, To me, like I just said in the intro there, the core of the podcast really comes down to learning. Uh, What does someone need to know to be happy and successful in life, and how can they learn it as efficiently and hopefully as enjoyably as possible? I think we put a lot of priority on efficiency sometimes, but I think enjoyment really matters too, and you're truly an expert in both of those things. Happy to talk about whatever you like today. Well, awesome. So uh, just starting with your own experience, what got you interested in these subjects? Yeah, so uh, the personal MBA came out of a side project. I wanted Mm. to learn business skills, get better uh, in the context of my career, and then eventually to start businesses of my own. And so instead of quitting my job, going back to school, borrowing a lot of money, I decided to learn all of these things for myself by reading and researching and experimenting both in my job and in businesses that I was starting on the side. And so the personal MBA is is really a summary or the culmination of all of the most important and useful things that I learned in those years of of research. And and so, yeah, the personal MBA is is really a book of synthesis. If you know absolutely nothing about business, But regardless of, of what market you're in, what industry you're in, what you do for a living, there is a set of, of knowledge about what businesses are and how they work and how to make them better that really is universal. And so the goal of the personal MBA was to take all of those most important essential things that everybody needs to know and just put them into one comprehensive resource that you can pick up and read through and and have a, a firm understanding of, of what this is and what you're doing. So that's that's the background of the personal MBA. The, the first 20 hours, uh, which was my second book about uh, rapid skill acquisition, learning things quickly, came out of uh, both a curiosity, uh, because when you, when you think about it, getting better at skills is something that is a part of all of our lives. 
Mm-hmm. We all do it not just once, but over and over and over again. And what I was noticing in people who would write about learning or people who would write about skill acquisition, it was all focused on the end game. Like what happens after you, you know, practice for thousands and thousands of hours and mm. now you're at the mm-hmm. Olympics. What's what's going to get you the gold medal? <laughs> and there's a certain amount, like that conversation is fascinating. It's interesting to learn about what mastery or excellence or uh, performance and competition, what that takes. But that's not how, th- that's not the things that are going to help us when we are trying to learn something new and valuable for ourselves. And so as I was, as I was reading and researching, I, I became very curious about the early part of the process. Like, how do you go from knowing absolutely nothing to being reasonably good in, in, in hopefully as, as fast and painless and not frustrating a process as, as you can muster. What does that look like? And so, yeah, the first 20 hours was my attempt to go into the research to figure out what science and what psychology say about how we learn and how we, we can learn faster and better, and then create a method, create an approach to learning things that can help us Learn whatever it is that we want to learn for ourselves in our own contexts, for our own priorities, but do that in a fast and efficient way. For me, when I first read the title of the book, The First 20 Hours, and, and saw your associated TED Talk, it felt, even upon just looking at the title, like a bit of a, a, a maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle allusion to the 10,000-hour rule and Malcolm Gladwell's work in Outliers. And as you were saying, kind of like the underlying idea of what's the difference between being a world-class expert in something versus just being perfectly good enough at it (laughs) to have it be an operational skill that exists inside of your life. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, at the time that I was writing it, the the 10,000-hour rule was, was just hitting the apex of its popularity in popular culture. And I think it's it's an it's an interesting case study in in how science and research when when it is popularized and people are are telling it, you know, it's it's kind of this this enormous game of telephone where mm-hmm. you you learn the idea and then you tell somebody else and they tell somebody else and by the end it bears almost no resemblance to the original thing that was said. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, that was happening with the first with the 10,000 hour rule. And so I, I think in general, it's not a mystery. It's not a controversial thing to say. If you practice something a lot, you're going to become very good at it. Uh, people who practice more are probably going to be better at a skill than people who practice less. Uh, that That's... There's very little mystery there. And then when it comes to these ultra-competitive performance domains, so let's, let's just take Olympic sprinting. When you have a situation where everyone has been practicing, where everyone is working hard, where everyone is doing the best that they can, then tiny differences, like let's say the length of your Achilles tendon, may determine success or failure in the context of competition. It's a high-status, high-stakes, fascinating thing to watch. Mm-hmm. And the things that will help us learn or get better at, the, at what we care about are not necessarily the same things that are going to help an Olympic sprinter get a gold medal. Like These, these are, are almost completely separate, different magisteria of skills and practice. And, and so what I tried to do was go into the research 
that focuses on the beginning, mm, that focuses mm-hmm. on you're starting from zero and trying to get somewhere. Because for most of us, when we're learning a skill, we're either learning it in the context of our job or our career, like there's something that would benefit us to learn. So, so we decide to devote some time to doing it, or we learn for fun. You know, there's, there's something personally in your life that you would like to get better at for whatever reason, uh, as idiosyncratic as many of those things can be. And I, I wanted to find out what it looks like to go from nothing to something. And is there research that helps us get there faster? And uh, turns out there is. So it's right there in the name already, the first 20 hours. Where did you, um, like you were saying, you made an allusion to research just then. Where did you get that number from? Where did the focus on 20 hours to achieve like reasonable competency at a skill come from? How, how did you go through that process of finding that number? Yeah, so, so what the research says, and, and the research is pretty consistent in this regard, and uh, important to say, replicable. And so mm-hmm. multiple people have done this. Um, it, it's called one of, one of the most validated effects in all of cognitive and behavioral psychology. It's called the power law of practice. Mm. And the, the thing, what, what the power law of practice is, is basically the rate of improvement that someone sees from just beginning the practice of a skill. And it doesn't matter if this is a, a cognitive or mental skill or a motor physical skill, doesn't matter. When you start at zero, you're not very good because we've never done this before. <laughs> not surprising. And then those, those early hours of practice are usually, you're not very good at it because you've never done it before. But when you look at the rate of improvement, and a lot of these studies will, will give people certain kinds of, of relatively demanding cognitive or, or physical tasks to do. And there's, there's an objective way to measure performance. And, and in these studies, what researchers found is that the first few hours of practice are always the most effective from an improvement standpoint. Mm-hmm. You go from being not good to, to gaining competence at a very rapid clip. Now, when you contrast that to the level of improvement you could expect to see a few thousand hours in, where you might still be improving, but the rate of improvement is pretty small, pretty marginal. It takes a lot of work to get up to that you know, next level, whatever it is. The early hours of practice, your competence goes up extremely quickly. Mm-hmm. And so there's this effect that if you, can, if you can continue practicing, if you don't get frustrated and quit, a few hours in mm, because mm-hmm. you're obviously not cut out for this and you're terrible and this is frustrating. If you can get through that early learning part, it's all down, downhill from there. Mm. And, and so the title, the first 20 hours came from one of the most effective things that you can do to practice enough to see substantial improvement. And that is making a pre-commitment. So what do you mean by that? A pre-commitment is the idea that when you're learning something new, you know in advance it's going to be difficult. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to want to quit. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, this is not going to be a comfortable experience in most cases. And adult learners in general have a very low tolerance to feeling stupid, to feeling frustrated, to feeling like this is an achievable thing. And so in contrast to children who in general— don't necessarily learn faster, 
they're just way, way better at if you fall off the bike, you get back up, brush yourself off, and you get back on the bike and you try it again. Um, as adults, we need a little bit of reminding that that is the process. There's nothing wrong with it. Doesn't mean you're bad at it. Doesn't mean you're not out, not cut out for doing this. It just means that you need to try again. And so in in behavioral psychology, there's this idea called a pre-commitment. And a pre-commitment is, base, is saying to yourself or committing to yourself in advance or committing to somebody else, somebody that you care about, that if I'm going to do this at all, I am going to invest at least this amount of time and energy into learning this thing. Mm-hmm. And if I'm bad at it, if I'm frustrated, if I want to quit, I might in the future. But I'm not going to until I get to, in this case, the 20-hour mark. Mm-hmm. And so where, where that number came from was my own research in, I chose a wide variety of skills, some cognitive skills, some motor skills, some things that you would learn for fun and some things that you would learn for work. And I was, I was putting, putting this uh, approach to the test in my own life to mm-hmm. see like, mm-hmm. hey, does this work? Because if it doesn't, I'm not going to write a book about it. <laughs> uh, and then B, what's the order of magnitude that we can expect? So across this wide range of skills, are we talking like a hundred hours mm, or a mm-hmm. thousand? I mean, it's open question, and 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 a lot, you know. To be clear, depends on the skill that you're that you're choosing and the level level of performance that you're looking at. Yeah. But what I found is that it's so usually the first five or six hours are very frustrating. Around somewhere after that point, call it you know ten hours plus or minus you start to see yourself improving and the practice itself becomes a lot less frustrating and a lot less stressful. So the hours between 10 and 20, if you can get yourself to practice at least 20 hours, you will be amazed at the amount of progress that you make Mm -hmm. or your level of performance at hour 20 versus your level of performance at hour one. And um, I think as a general rule of thumb, just, you know, an easy way to visualize. Yeah. I think like 40, 40 minutes a day for about a month. That's a pretty doable, approachable thing for most people, even people with busy ske- schedules, with families, with a lot going on in their lives. Setting aside 40 minutes to practice something that's important to you is a doable thing. You might have to make some trade-offs. Um, sure, yeah. You might have to make some decisions about how you're spending your time. But, but that... I think understanding the process of skill acquisition in that way is a lot more useful and a lot more beneficial than thinking, well, if I'm going to get good at this, I'm going to have to invest 10,000 hours in yeah. it, and I don't have mm-hmm. that amount of time, so why should I bother in the first place? Yeah, which is a full-time job for a pretty extended period of time is 10,000 hours, roughly, depending yes. on how you want to slice it out. But I think it's something, I forget what the number was that I always see bandied around. I want to say it's like 2,160 hours are the number of work hours that you have in a year or something along mm-hmm. the lines of that. So if you just prorate that over 10,000 hours, that's five years of your full-time job before you're allowed to achieve something that approximates expertise. And I can't speak for you, but most of us probably don't have that amount of time just floating around in our days these days. Yeah. And if if you're curious about the original research, um, the the guy who came up with the research that became known as the 10,000 hour rule, Mm -hmm. a gentleman by the name of Anders Ericsson. And uh, he has a, a lot of papers, a couple of books out there about this. 
Um, unfortunately, he, he passed away uh, just a few months ago. Enormous, influential researcher. And his, his contribution to this area was the idea of deliberate practice. And so it's one thing to sit down and practice and then check your phone or be interrupted in the middle of a session to do it for a while, but to not really pay attention to what you're doing, uh, to not have any sort of what I call a fast feedback loop, having a way to notice what, the, notice what you're seeing in terms of your own performance and then being able to compare that against something that you know is correct. Mm, mm-hmm. And then by having that, while you're practicing, you can notice that something went wrong. Something unexpected happened. You, you're not performing the way you want to, yeah. and you can correct as you're practicing. Could you give a couple of examples of that, real quickly? Like, what are what are different forms of feedback loops that somebody could have if they're trying to build a certain kind of task? The one that most people would be familiar with, or is easy to visualize, is this is why working with a coach works. Sure. Yeah. Because you can be practicing, you can be performing, and the coach sees you do something or not do something, and they can step in and help you understand what you did and correct it the next next go round. That's an example of a fast feedback loop. So so I have I have two children. One is uh, almost ten, and one is almost seven. Mm. And it's been fascinating. I wrote this book. I, I think uh, when I finished it, my daughter was almost one. And so it was a little early, but, you know, I was doing all of this for myself, you know, going, going through this process of, of learning new things. And now they're old enough to be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So having mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. this research and context and background and the opportunity to watch very up close as little people who are dear to me are going through this process <laughs> of learning something cool. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Um, so both of them are learning to play the piano right now. And... Um, there's there's a, a an old and and very effective method called the Suzuki method of music. I think I did it when I was a kid. Actually, I, I played the piano when I was younger. I think I literally did the Suzuki method. Do you remember listening to the tapes? They would have been like tapes or CDs back then. Listening, yeah, to music? yeah. I think that I think it was actually tapes, but yeah, it might have been CDs. Yeah. So it, it's um. That is the part of the Suzuki method. There, there are a lot of things going for it. There's a lot of really good psychology mm-hmm. baked into the method. But one of the best things from a skill acquisition standpoint is you don't start with the kid sitting at a piano plunking on keys. You start sometimes months in advance by listening to the tapes. So when you are sitting down and practicing and trying to play a piece, you know in your head what, what it's supposed to sound like. And if as you're playing, it doesn't sound like that, you know immediately that you did something wrong and you need to go back and fix it. And so just being able to to recognize as you're practicing, paying very close attention to what you're doing, being able to recognize when there's an adjustment that needs to be made makes the practice as you're doing it way more effective and way more efficient than it would otherwise be. That makes total sense. And I do have... Two questions here. One's about the nature of the task. As you were saying, like there are some tasks that I would imagine are, are pretty basic or some skills that are pretty basic where we can get really, really far in 20 hours. And then there are some, which like playing the piano, I think is a great example, where you could easily pour that 10,000 hours into learning how to play the piano, if not more than that. Sure. So is there, in terms of the, the kind of power rule of skill acquisition, is that different for different kinds of tasks? Like, do you get... Uh, 
are you further away from mastery of the piano in, in 20 hours to put it a certain kind of way? Or did you uh, chip off a smaller amount of that of that rock in the first 20 hours than you would have with a simpler task? Yes. Like, are there some tasks that the, the power rule is like more suited for than others to put it another kind of way? No, I, I think it's the the power law of practice applies regardless of what we're doing. Mm. I think the the thing that you're you're highlighting, mm. and rightly so, is the idea that most of the things that we think of as tasks are not individual isolated tasks. They're bundles of of skills yeah. that we are all doing at the same well time. Said. That's a good clarification. And so think of think of like a, a sport like golf. So we can say. I want to get good at golf, but you can also break that down into, you know, the, the things that you do in the, in the process of playing the game are substantially different. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to, to practice the global skill in aggregate, what you can do is, is deconstruct it into the smaller parts, the things that you are actually doing when you are playing golf and choose one and practice that using this method. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not a golfer, so I'll probably mangle these terms horribly. But <laughs> but when you are when you are using a driver and the ball's on a tee, you're trying to hit it very far. Mm -hmm. That is a, and straight. That is a discrete task that you can practice. That's what driving ranges are for. It lets you do that over and over and over again. When the ball is on the green and you're trying to put it into the hole, it's it's still a, a motor skill, but it looks very very different than driving the ball off a tee. And so that's what a putting green is for. You can go and practice that over and over and over in different circumstances. And so I think most of the things that we think of as skills are bundles. And so it helps to break the skill down into smaller parts. And then this is, this is where a little bit of learning or a little bit of research can come in very handy. Hmm. And so uh, you don't want to do too much research at the beginning. That's that's something that <laughs> I, in particular, being research inclined, um, am, am very prone to do. Uh, there's there's a, a term for too much research. It's called procrastination, and it's not <laughs> practice. Yeah. And so, you know, doing a little bit of reading or research, watching a video, working with a coach, can help you break down this this bundle of skills into the smallest parts. And can help you select which of the subskills are going to get you the most benefit in the least amount of time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm thinking, I think this is such an essential idea, so I just really want to highlight it here for people. I'm thinking of learning how to paint um, with the idea that I, I've, I mean, my partner, my girlfriend is a wonderful artist and a great painter. Um, and the way that a lot of people learn how to paint, at least in her experience, is they kind of like sit down with something in front of them and they go, okay, I'm just going to paint a thing. So they have a blank canvas, they have all of their art supplies of various kinds, and they sit down and they, quote unquote, just start painting. But probably the worst mm -hmm. way to get better at painting is by sitting down with a blank canvas and going, I'm going to just produce a painting right now. Because it's such a large, complicated task, and you can't delineate out those little skills. And the more that you can think about those process goals on the way to an outcome goal, the better off you're probably going to be. Yeah. So uh, an example, I took, this would have been a couple of years ago, but I, I took an art class because I mm -hmm. haven't done it since junior high and, and um, was just, just interested. 
one of the things, so, so they did a very similar deconstruction of like, mm. if, if they give you a reference photograph or, or whatever, it's like, draw an apple. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A little circle, fill it in with red. A lot of, of the early parts of that skill are learning how to see. Mm, mm-hmm. So to look at something in front of you and say, okay, where are the edges? And what are the contours of the edges? Can I get as close to that on the paper as I as I am seeing right now? Where are areas of light and dark or or certain shadows? And and so that's it's a completely different domain, but you see the same thought process of what's what's a discrete subskill that we can identify. Let's focus on that for a while. Let's practice. Let's play with that. See what you can do with it. Spend a few hours there. And by doing that with the most important subskills first, that's how you make those early hours of practice as effective as they can be. So yeah, like, you know, going back to the golf example, spending a lot of time with the, I don't know, sand wedge or whatever, (laughs) it's probably not the most important thing that you can be practicing right now. You'll get to it eventually. Yeah, it's not the highest leverage skill. Yeah. yeah. It's not not important, but you know, spending some time with the driver and the putter is probably going to get you uh, to where you want to be faster. And so, yeah, that's, that's the real benefit of research, being able to break it down, being able to identify what's important and what's not, and then spend those early hours on the most important things first. So a lot of people, I think, entered our lovely quarantine situation here in the United States uh, with the desire to learn a lot of new and different skills. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't know if you remember this, but right when kind of quarantine stuff started, there was a lot of impetus just on social media or just kind of in the broader culture of like, use this time to get better at something, which sure I think is great. And uh, I'm sure that some of those attempts were even probably pretty successful. Um, but it's also become something of like, a meme, broadly speaking, that there were all these desires to learn new things early on, and then they all kind of fell by the wayside as the existential dread sat in effectively. And as we became more and more into like, what is this going to be over? Woe is me, the world is falling apart. There was a lot more emphasis of that, the motivation to kind of learn something new and spend our free time in more productive ways kind of fell away. So that suggests, of course, that like our psychological state has a big impact on our ability to learn effectively, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is something that I talk about in the first or in the personal MBA in the psychology section. Mm-hmm. It's it's an idea called threat lockdown. And so when we are feeling threatened, when we feel like the universe is uncertain, or there's there's something in our lives that could go in a way that we don't want it to. Mm. Our body has a built-in defense mechanism that that goes back millions of years into, you know, there's a predator coming your way. What are the things that are going to keep you alive right now? Threat lockdown is, is essentially the physiological response that we have to, to threat that causes us to freeze, that hmm. causes mm-hmm. us to, to just hyper-focus on what's going wrong, not focus so much on opportunities for growth or exploring new things or doing things that might make our lives better in the future. Because in our ancestral environment, if you don't focus on the threat that's in front of you right now, there might not be a future to make better. This is built in very, very deep. And so it's important to understand that it's there. 
It's a physiological response, which is why things like exercise and sleep and nutrition and all of that are, are tools that can make this better. Mm-hmm. Because if if your body is not in a proper state to deal with stress, then the stress is going to override the higher level parts of you that can focus on making the future better. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that this is this is how our bodies respond to threats is the first challenge. And then when you understand it, you can start to make some changes to make it easier to get out of that state and into a different one. And so, you know, part of it, we already talked about the physiological response, doing all the things to help your body deal with the, the physiological stressors of, mm. mm-hmm. uh, that you're dealing with. But then also, a lot of, of dealing with our time and attention and making decisions about life in general comes down to the idea of trade-offs. And so if you think about your attention, you have 24 hours a day, just like everyone else in the world. We all, have, we all have the same amount of innate capacity to pay attention to things, to choose one thing over the other. And doing things to make it easier to make the trade-offs that you decide are important to you and that will get to the future that you want for yourself. We have some tools that can help us do that. Part of that is is changing the structure of our, env- our environment. And so maybe, just maybe, turn off the browser on your phone and uninstall Twitter or Facebook for a while. <laughs> because if you're finding yourself doom scrolling for six hours every yeah, night, totally, you're stressing yourself out and you're not you know, getting better at things that, that would make your future better. Um, so, so we can, we can change the structure of our environment to make certain decisions, certain actions, certain ways we spend our, our energy and attention more difficult or less difficult. And that ends up being a very effective way to, to change your behavior, to, to make it easier to, to invest your time and energy in the ways that you choose. So this probably won't come as much of a surprise either to you or to anyone listening. As you alluded to, there's a psychology or human mind section in the personal MBA, and it was probably one of Mm -hmm. my favorite sections of the book. And in addition to what you said about that idea of threat lockdown and just various ways that our environment can affect us, you seem really interested in the various ways that the brain can deceive us. Yes. The logical fallacies of different kinds, the way that the brain is built through evolution to focus on certain kinds of inputs and outputs to the exclusion of others, just all of these little things. And, you know, right now, it feels like people are trying to generally like sift through a, at the very least, the perception of maybe I should say a more threatening environment that has a lot of misinformation in it than maybe ever before. So what are some of the things that you've seen just floating around out in the world these days that are particularly present as like common logical fallacies or errors of judgment or otherwise. Yeah, I, I would say that um, for everyone listening, if you haven't read it yet, there's a wonderful book about all of this, which is where a lot of a lot of my understanding of the topic comes from. It's a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Mm-hmm. And Robert Cialdini, the the preface of the book is delightful. It he's he's a psychologist by background. And he noticed himself, this, this, this was written a long time ago. So he was having a hard time with salespeople in particular, even like the most obvious blatant door-to-door salesmen coming up, 
selling encyclopedias or something. It's like, <laughs> I don't need a set of encyclopedias. But somehow at the end of this conversation, I found myself buying a set of encyclopedias and I don't know why, mm, what's going mm-hmm. on. And so he, he goes on this, this research journey to figure out how we are persuaded, how we can be convinced that something is or is not true or is or is not the right thing to do. And a lot of the book talks about six specific cognitive biases or, or ways that our mind reliably malfunctions or, or makes poor decisions or does things that are not in our best interest because of weird quirks about either how our minds develop or how our minds process our immediate environment versus our ancestral environment. And so the two things that I, that I see happening a lot right now in particular, and one of the ideas that, that uh, Sheldini talks about in this book is social proof. So when we are around other people, their decisions, their behaviors, their choices, what we see other people do has an enormous impact on both what we think and how we act. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a strange environment— you know, as, as the, the old saying goes, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. If you feel poorly calibrated about what to think or how to act, looking around to see how other people are thinking and how other pe- people are acting is pretty constructive, right? If you, if you don't have information, well, you're getting some information about the environment that can help inform. Unfortunately, there, there are a lot of things about our modern environment. We have the same the same pattern, the same process running in our mind, but instead of being applied to very local things, mm. we have the internet where we can receive information and see other people doing things that may or may not be true, mm. may or may not be accurate, may or may not be helpful or applicable to, to our context, what it is that we're trying to do or what we care about. And so that could become a very poor heuristic to figure out what's true, what's valuable, what's important. Because it's also true that large groups of people can be misinformed and make very poor decisions giving, given the context if that large group of people does not understand what's going on. And so that's, that's a big thing. Sheldini talks a lot about authority. And so authority figures or perceived authority figures are more persuasive in general than people who are not perceived as authority figures. And so when your boss tells you to do something for a certain reason, um, when a leader tells you to do or not do something for a reason, those, those requests or commands are perceived as much more important, much more trustworthy, uh, much more worthy of being acted upon mm, mm-hmm. than if the same thing in this the same thing in the same way in the same context were to be said by a person who is not perceived as mm-hmm. an authority figure. Yeah. And so the internet has changed a lot of human society, how we communicate with each other, how we interact with each other. And these psychological tendencies, and, and these are only two of the six that Sheldini <laughs> talks about in the book. I highly, for anybody who's listening to this, I highly recommend this book. It's, it's very enlightening. These tendencies are operating automatically all the time. 
and are influential regardless of whether or not we recognize them or have learned about them. Mm-hmm. So this was, you know, the 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 father of of modern cognitive biases, uh, researcher by the name of um, Richard Kahneman and uh, Michael Traversky, who was his research partner, and and one of the things that I, I think that there was a, a a journalist who asked him like. Okay, so now that you you know about all of these cognitive biases, like you have to be the hardest person in the world to fool, right? Like mm, you can mm-hmm. see all of this happening. And he's like, "Oh no. Yes, I I know about them and I I catch myself in the process of thinking and feeling in these ways because these are tendencies that are built into the human brain very very deep." And so there's enormous value in understanding what they are and how they work so you can prevent as much as possible the, the making poor decisions um, based on some of these repeatable psychological errors. But there's always the danger. Like, this is not the, not the kind of thing that you learn once and it's like, okay, no more mistakes along these lines for me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a process of understanding and constant vigilance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned social proof, you know, the source of information being valued over the nature of the information itself might be another mm-hmm. way to put it. Or asking yourself, huh, if I were being told this fact from these five different sources, how would I actually feel about it as opposed to being told this fact by this just one source? And also that can be, you know, a little bit of a helpful way for people to start to investigate what their own biases might be and which kinds of Absolutely. sources of information that they're privileging inside of their own life. Yeah. Was there another one that you were thinking of that is particularly present these days? Yeah. There's one called um, commitment and consistency, which mm-hmm. is a fascinating one. Um, this, this very often uh, appears in the context of sales and persuasion, which is how it's talked about in, um, in influence. But it's also has a lot of commonalities with group affiliation. Mm-hmm. Commitment is the process of if you get someone to agree to something even, even something small, even something inconsequential, the probability that they are going to act in the future in a way that is consistent with that commitment is much, much higher than it would be otherwise. And so salespeople talk about this in, in the sense of the get the foot in the door strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like, Get the customer saying yes. Get the customer agreeing that this is important. Get the customer agree that, oh, isn't this one better than this one? And, and the more of those very small commitments that a person makes, the higher the likelihood in the future that they're going to say, yes, I'll buy this thing because I've already agreed that this is the better one. This is, you know, has these features, has these, you know, whatever. So commitments also operate in the context of a group. And so if in the past you have identified yourself as a member of group A versus group B, if you have said that you would support this this policy or this decision or this way of being versus another this this way of thinking about the world this way of um adjusting or deciding upon priorities then in the future it's much more likely that you are going to operate in a way that is consistent with that prior commitment or stated mm-hmm. belief or group affiliation. And it is less likely that you are going to operate in a way that is going to be inconsistent with that. And so there, there are a lot of, of consequences of this. 
Um, this is the reason that sometimes it's hard to leave a job that's not um, a good fit for you mm, anymore. Mm-hmm. Because you have said and demonstrated uh, in the past that your job is important to you and you want to do a good job and maybe you want to get promoted. And you know, so, so choosing to leave in a sense, it's not necessarily in an accurate sense, but in a sense can be perceived as being inconsistent with what you said and did prior. Um, if, if it's, um, in the, the societal sense, if you, you know, support a particular, uh, political party, if you support a particular, um, uh, person and in the future you receive information that maybe you should change your mind, it's consistent consistency that makes that often a very uncomfortable thing to do, something that requires a lot more thought and a lot more anxiety, stress than it really should. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you think about it, like the smart thing to do is when you have new information, you should update your beliefs that account for that new information. That's, that's, that's what learning is. And so it's um, the, com- the consistency part is the thing that can really trip us up. It's the thing that thinks that that prevents a lot of the accepting of new information, updating our beliefs and our actions based on that information in a way that can make us smarter, more informed, better able to deal with the realities of our present environment. And it's it's that wanting to be perceived as consistent with our prior commitments that that becomes an active psychological and emotional barrier that can prevent a lot of that from happening yeah i mean for me i see it a lot as being a bit of a cousin to sunk cost to an extent Mm -hmm. we've invested in this thing in the past we want to keep on investing in it and also something that we've talked about on the podcast a good bit at least and, and this is we're wandering into the territory of personal belief here a little bit as opposed to like good research article this is just sort of me musing on what some of the underpinnings of this might be Sure. But honestly, like if you if you change your view now, a lot of people I think have the very very false wiring and and the false understanding that that means that they were wrong in the past. Right. And that's like a really being wrong is really hard for people. It's really hard for me, it's really hard for most anyone. It is a painful experience. I mean, part of what you were talking about earlier about the pain of the first couple of hours of the first 20 hours is the experience mm-hmm. while you're practicing over and over again of being wrong, like again and again and again. Nobody wants that feeling. So if we, I don't know, to use the obvious and pregnant example these days, if we vote for one party last year and a different party this year, that makes us feel, oh, I must have been wrong last year. And that's a pretty painful experience. And it takes a lot of like active willpower to work through that, I think. Yeah. I think the other thing that that's worth remembering too is that we are all... We are not omniscient, omnipotent beings with perfect information <laughs> capable of making perfect decisions. That's not how reality works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go, going back to the consistency thing, if you have new information that is informing your worldview and updating your beliefs and, and making you consider new options, it's not an indictment on your past self that you somehow should have had that information that you should have done something different, um, that you should feel bad now mm, for mm-hmm. acting in a way in the past that is consistent with your beliefs and information now. 
that's not how reality works. Yeah, for sure. We have to accept our fallibility to an extent. Yeah. And and so the best thing that you can do is act on 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 the best information and beliefs and worldview approach to the world as you have right now. And doing so is is an act of learning and growth and respecting and valuing where you are now. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something to be avoided. That's what that's what growth looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the same way that, you know, going going back to our earlier earlier example of learning how to, how to play the piano. If you're better at playing the piano now, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you should choose to play a piece poorly because that's how you played it in the past. Yeah, that doesn't make totally. any sense at all. Um so so yeah, I I think I really enjoy the process of getting better at life in every sense. And if you're paying attention to your world, if you're working on improving in ways that are important and meaningful to you, if you are investing in yourself and your skills and your capabilities and your knowledge, then who cares what your past self knew or didn't know or was capable of or not capable of? Perform at the level that you are capable of performing right now. That is literally all that matters. Well, I think that that's a wonderful summary note to kind of close our conversation on here, Josh. It's just been a total pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for taking the time. Forrest, thanks so much for the invitation. It's been great talking. So today I had a great time talking with Josh Kaufman about two main subjects. The first one that we touched on was how to learn skills more quickly and how quickly can we actually learn a skill? Is the 10,000 hour rule a ironclad rule? Or maybe, as I think all of us have experienced at some point, is it possible to learn things to a acceptable level a little bit more quickly than that? And then the second thing that we got into toward the end of the conversation was cognitive biases of various kinds. In other words, the various ways that the brain tends to lie to us. In the first part of our conversation, Josh emphasized something called the power rule of practice. This basically means that there is a diminishing return for every hour that we spend trying to learn a certain form of task. And the fastest period of learning that we're going to do is, generally speaking, toward the beginning of our time interacting with a skill. And we've all experienced this to some extent. You can go from knowing nothing about cooking to being able to work your way around the kitchen pretty quickly. But going from knowing how to work your way around a kitchen to becoming a restaurant chef is a much more involved process. Fortunately, most of the skills that we're interested in acquiring over the course of our life are a lot closer to wanting a basic understanding of something than they are becoming an expert in them. And one of the problems with the 10,000-hour rule and similar is that it can be really discouraging. If picking up a new skill means that I'm going to have to spend 10,000 hours working on this thing, man, that's really demotivating. That is a big commitment. But as Josh said, if it's really more like 20 hours to get to a basic level of competency in most things, that feels so much more approachable. And that approachability then makes it so much more likely that we're actually going to begin that process. One of the things that Josh emphasized was forming what's called a pre-commitment with yourself. Before you begin the task at all, promise yourself, hold yourself to it, pinky swear to yourself, whatever you got to do, that you're going to commit to doing those first 20 hours, 40 minutes a day for a month. That's it. That's all you got to do. And you will be amazed at how much better you get at doing a basic thing. 
Then Josh really emphasized active feedback loops. In other words, being able to pretty immediately get input on what you've done so far. The classical way to approach that is by working with a coach. And of course, it's lovely to have a coach, but coaches cost money and we're in quarantine right now and accessing people is a little bit challenging. But the blessing and curse of modern technology is that we almost always have access to watching somebody do something at an expert level. There are literally millions of YouTube videos devoted to people teaching you something. And many of those instructors these days are really very excellent. So following along with them and being able to get immediate feedback can be a great way to learn something. And then we can break the learning process, the whole task of learning how to, for instance, play the piano or play golf, down into more manageable chunks. Rather than sitting down at the piano with a whole piece arrayed in front of you and trying to kind of fumble your way through it, you can focus on, for instance, learning scales or getting better at hearing certain tones or being able to name a tone when you hear it or practicing chord progressions in your fingers or whatever else. Those discrete skills that you can certainly spend way more than 20 hours on any one of them then can add up to the total comprehensive skill of playing the piano that you want to obtain. Then at the end of the conversation, we talked about cognitive bias. Cognitive bias, as you might've been able to tell, is actually a favorite topic of mine. And Josh gave a few really good pieces of advice and in particular, highlighted some cognitive biases that tend to really trip people up. The first one basically boils down to when you hear something from a person in authority, you tend to agree with it more. Sometimes we can get really narrowly focused on the opinion of one single expert or one single boss or one single politician, whatever it might be. And it can cloud our view of everything else that's going on in the world around us. There's a reason that some of the most valued pieces of research are called meta-analyses. These are effectively studies of studies where you look at this huge sample size of results and you try to return some piece of information from it. Trusting any one study, things can go a bit sideways. But when you're trusting the aggregate of 100 studies, man, that's a pretty solid piece of information that you're probably working with. Then we closed with what Josh called consistency and commitment. This basically means that if somebody said yes to something in the past, they now feel kind of bad saying no to it. It's sort of similar to a kind of sunk cost fallacy. Well, I supported that thing in the past. Man, if I stop supporting it now, am I really just being kind of inconsistent? But the truth is, of course, we want to update our understanding. We want to learn more tomorrow than we know today. And learning and growing over time, becoming a different person tomorrow than we are today, requires us to let go of some old beliefs about the world, things that we did in the past that now no longer serve us. And I thought that that was a great note to close the conversation on. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Also, we're on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, where for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Josh Kaufman. I had a great time talking with him. And until next time, thanks for listening.